1: a group from 40 days for life was out there and they opposed me preaching out there and they were pretty adamant about it the end result was that i began to take closer look at some of the things they were teaching We claim we serve a God that took a shepherd boy and dropped a giant with a stone. That's the God that we serve, a God who's powerful if we will follow his principles. They're willing to abandon that for the sake of numbers. They need to get back to the God of the Bible who can drop this Goliath to its knees through simple proclamation of the truth.
2: In a culture as politically polarized and aggressively tribalized as ours, how do people change their minds? I'm Georgie Borman, a mother, author, and cultural commentator born and raised on the West Coast. I want to know what we can learn from people who've been on both sides of contentious issues, whether they end up on the right or the left. That's what this podcast is about. Welcome to The 180 Cast. Hi, welcome back to The 180 Cast. I'm your host, Georgie Borman. I write a lot about abortion, as many of you know. Um, it's no secret that I think that this is the most pressing issue of our time. And since I have a new baby at home, he's six weeks old now, as of yesterday, um, this issue hits pretty, it hits harder for me, um, during this time when you have a little infant at home. And I, I honestly do not see how you can hold a little baby and see his face, and hear him coo and cry and move around in those cute little baby ways and just see the goodness of children as a gift from God and not also see the evil of abortion. So if this is where I lose you because you're, you're offended, I'm sorry to hear it. Um, I'll be praying for you, but I think that this issue is far too importion- important to dance around the truth. And I'm just not going to beat around the bushes with it. So we've done a few podcast episodes on abortion before. Um, Abby Johnson, I think, was actually the very first episode that we did when she talks about her conversion. We also talked to Sarah St. Ange from Save the One, who is pro-life without exception um, after carrying a baby with body stock anomaly to term. That was a really great episode. Um I learned a lot. You'll learn a lot, too. And then we've also talked to a libertarian. We we talked to Kathy Reisenwitz, who went from actually being pro-life to being pro-choice. So that was illuminating in another way as well. Um, So today we're going to wade even deeper into controversy by discussing what my next guest sees as the folly of the pro-life movement. He's the founding pastor of Christ is King Baptist Church in Syracuse, New York, He's the author of Evangelism in the New Testament and co-producer of the pro-life documentary Babies Are Murdered Here, which is a documentary I think that everybody should watch no matter what you believe or what you call yourself. You definitely need to watch it. He is also a regular contributor to Gospel Spam. You can find nearly 200 of his sermons on Sermon Audio, which is quite impressive. Pastor John Speed, thank you so much for um, being willing to kick the hornet's nest with me.
1: <laughs> Thanks for being willing to have me on.
2: Absolutely. Um yeah, just a couple days ago is uh, I finished watching um Babies Are Murdered here and uh it's that's, that's, um it's hard to watch but it was really powerful. So I'm so glad that it's it's available for everybody to see because um it really gives you a lot to think about. I mean, I I had already sort of been been um converted to sort of that way of thinking that's presented, the arguments that are presented there, but even so it was oh it's really powerful, you know. Anytime you get complacent, it's it's good to go back and, and be reminded why why you do what you do. Um so Note to the listener really quick before we get started, don't forget that you can subscribe to the podcast to stay updated. We release a new episode every Friday with bi-weekly breakdowns where we talk about the news and the issues of our day and um, recap the previous interview and do some more analysis of it. And uh, I specialize in debunking conventional wisdom. So if you have a friend or two who would find this episode of interest, go ahead and hit pause and share it with them. Let us begin. Okay, Pastor John, I watched one of your sermons on YouTube called, I think it was titled The Pro-Life Cult, which is very strong wording, very provocative. (laughs) And in it, you said that you used to send people from your church into, you know, quote unquote, the pro-life movement, but then your thinking sort of began to change as you found out more about it. So let's just start with what was your earlier perspective on the pro-life movement And why do you think that was, that you thought that way? And then what led you to change your mind?
1: Well, my earlier perspective on the pro-life movement is probably fairly standard for the evangelical pastor. I felt that, you know, that they were people who really cared about ending abortion. I felt that they were people who were probably knew more about it than I did. They were the experts, and so you know they raised money they had money available they had resources available and so i i figured if we had people in our church that were there if they were interested in doing something about abortion that you could pretty much just sort of send them into any aspect of the pro life movement whether it be crisis pregnancy centers national right to life march for life things like that and be pretty secure that you know you're doing a good thing that you were helping to actually end abortion by doing that and and so that's what i did i believe that one of the churches that i pastored before had a crisis pregnancy center in fact i know they had a crisis pregnancy center on their missions giving we had various speakers come in at different times you know of course did sanctity of life sundays and so that was my attitude generally i was generally supportive although i didn't know a whole lot about the pro-life movement specifically
2: so how did you begin to change your mind on the issue?
1: Well, I won't really say that I changed my mind as much as I really believe God just opened my eyes to what was happening. Mm-hmm. When back in 2011, I started going to abortion clinics. I was at that time I was doing a lot of street evangelism and I knew of some people that went to abortion clinics. And I thought, well, maybe that's some place you could go to preach the gospel. So I, I went to an abortion clinic in Fort Worth, Texas, and just observed the first time or two that I was out there, just to see what was happening. And the guy that led that outreach took me aside one day and said, John, I want you to pray about what God would have you to do out here, and then do it. So that's what I did. I prayed about it. It seemed logical to do what I have been doing everywhere else, preach the gospel at the clinic. And so the next time that I went out, I did it. I stood where he stood, and I preached. And that's what I started doing. And so as I did that in Texas at that location, it wasn't a big deal. When I came here to Syracuse that same year, a group from 40 days for life was out there and they opposed me preaching out there. And they were pretty adamant about it. In fact, we had a meeting in the fall of that year, I believe Abby had been here. Abby Johnson had been here maybe a month prior to me showing up in Syracuse. And so they were very adamant against me preaching out there. And so we got a meeting, the um, long and the short of it. it didn't really go well. Um, and so I began to learn that the pro-life movement really uh, didn't want to call abortion murder. Uh, they didn't want to call abortion a sin, at mm-hmm. least at that time. And they certainly didn't want gospel preaching out in front of a clinic. And that just kind of surprised me when it, when it first happened. Even though I know there's obvious differences between Roman Catholicism and evangelicalism, I would have thought that they would have been generally ambivalent about preaching, that they would at least tolerate it. But um, there wasn't even a tolerance of it.
2: So it was, they had a problem with you preaching, period, not just you using certain language like murder?
1: They had a problem with both. They had a problem with both, to be honest. So yeah. Now
2: but would we, would they would it be acceptable in their opinion to like hand out tracts and things like
1: yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, I guess they would uh because as long as you're not preaching, they probably wouldn't care so much about that. Although even then I do remember there was discussion about what to hand out at the clinics. Um of course 40 Days has all their own material. I don't remember enough about the tract issue to really speak definitively on it here but I would suspect that would be an issue if we weren't um, matching what they were doing.
2: Okay. Okay, so then then where did you go from there?
1: Well, from there, it wasn't long after that we started filming a documentary called Babies are Murdered Here, and we went from that that sort of local issue about the gospel when some of the leaders of the pro-life movement got wind of what we were doing They began to oppose us, mainly on Facebook, regarding the idea of preaching at the clinics, calling abortion murder, talking about abortion being sin. And so it just confirmed what I learned locally here in Syracuse, that this is something that didn't come from them. It came from sort of the national level of various organizations. And so it began to really look at the pro-life movement in the process of doing that film. We were just trying to mobilize Christians churches, local churches, to go out to the clinics to preach the gospel, and the opposition that we got was, I don't know what word to use, it was overwhelming, monumental, it was a lot of opposition, and the end result was that I began to take a closer look at some of the things that they were teaching and saying, and uh, it's, you know, and now I'm at the point, we now we're working on our second documentary, Babies Are Still Murdered Here, we're in editing for that right now. We're done filming. Uh but it's just been more the same. A lot more opposition about some of the about the gospel uh being yeah. primary. So
2: so what is their reasoning? What is what is their argument for pre- pre- preventing you from sharing the gospel?
1: Well, there's a couple of arguments involved. One argument is that if we are out there preaching the gospel, if we're out there lifting our voices so as to be heard, maybe even within the clinic, being loud enough to be heard inside of the clinic, that it's intimidating, it's scary, the women are victims, and therefore in that um, mentality, anything that we do that's loud is going to actually, in their idea, just kind of force them into the clinic. so that's the reasoning, but we have pretty good evidence to the contrary that that uh, when God wants to change hearts and lives, He does through the preaching of the Word of God.
2: Okay, so w- what else are they saying? You know, like if if you're getting you know pinged on Facebook, or they're sh- they're sharing things on Facebook, is it just that these women are are going to be intimidated? Because you would, you would think that, I mean, I guess if you have a problem sharing the gospel, if they have a problem with showing the gospel outside of the abortion mills, that they would also have a problem with street preaching in general. So is this like a consistent belief that, that being loud and, and not having people, you know, let's say like enter into a church in some sort of, you know, quote unquote consent to hear the gospel, that it's a problem with anything outside of that?
1: Well, I, I um, don't know what some of these folks specifically would say about that, but I would say that there is an attitude even within evangelicalism in general that going out into the streets and actually confronting the issues of the day with the Word of God and, and using the issues of the day as a springboard to discuss the gospel, largely amongst the average evangelical, they they think that you got three heads if you do such a thing. And I think it's just the general direction of the culture of the evangelical culture that we're kind of in a circle the wagons moment in our history we're afraid to offend anybody we want to be relevant and there's nothing much more offensive or irrelevant to uh, most people than going out and taking a bible opening it and preaching about sin and repentance and faith and judgment maybe even talk about hell you know those things are offensive to even Church-going people, uh, so we live in a strange time.
2: This is very interesting because when I read Abby Johnson's book, she spoke a lot about how, well, kind of like you said at the beginning, it wasn't you changing your mind so much as God opening your eyes. And she used she used basically the same language and um, and talking about you know the grace of God in her life and changing her mind and things like that. So it's very interesting that that she um, and other other people who have been inspired by her would would then sort of have a disconnect with that idea of God opening people's eyes when it comes to preaching the gospel.
1: Um, right. And the difference, I think, is is that, first of all, I think with Abby, what you're looking at there is an idea that the grace of God opened her eyes and converted her to the idea that the baby is human, <laughs> and it shouldn't be shouldn't be murdered, or at least shouldn't be aborted. She would say that God did that, and it was his grace that did that, but I take definite issue with what the gospel is. Like, the question is, what is the gospel? If you ask Abby, what is the gospel? How do you get right with God? What she will say is, well, I, I get right with God every time I take the Roman Catholic Mass. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the sacraments... Uh, make me right with him every time that I do it. Well, the, in the traditional reformed view of the gospel, that's not the gospel. The gospel is Jesus Christ died for sinners, rose from the dead, and if we place our faith in him, we are declared right by virtue of his sacrifice, not on our works and not certainly not the Roman Catholic Mass. And so we have a fundamental difference in theology that plays itself out in methodology. You know What we believe influences how we do what we do. And so...
2: It's almost like theology matters or something like that.
1: Imagine that. (laughs) Right. It it, it does.
2: Yeah, it's it's very interesting because um, I know that she actually grew up evangelical, I think maybe even Baptist, and then she converted to Roman Catholicism. So that's interesting that she's taking such a, a hard stand against that when that should have been the theology that she understood from having grown up with that so that
1: may be an indictment of you know the average evangelical church we don't really teach enough theology to begin with even about salvation we're broad tent right now i mean anybody can claim it and we'll accept it
2: yeah fair point so what are some of the things that you learned when you guys were filming babies are murdered here
1: well, we definitely learned that they didn't want they didn't want us to say that abortion was murder at the clinic. They might concede that abortion is murder, but they certainly didn't want us around with signs that say babies are murdered here because it's too negative, too confrontational. When we probed a little further, they certainly didn't seem to want you to talk about the fact that abortion is sin based on the fragile emotional state of the women who go to the clinics is, was their argument. So you want to talk about sin, you don't want to call it what it is. The issue that I have there, I understand what they're saying, why they say what they say. I don't agree with it, but I understand it. But the the issue has to do with what's really happening in the clinic. <laughs> uh, babies are really being murdered there, right? Most pro-lifers at some point or the other will admit that. And so there ought to be some sense of urgency. There ought to be some sense of what's happening there is wrong, it's evil, and we need to try to stop people from doing that. And so that was the first thing that we learned regarding that front. The other thing that we began to learn was that in quite a bit of post-abortive counseling, This is just from digging around, looking at some of the material that was available, especially when we did the first film. That a lot of post abortive counseling carried the same theme into it, so that the women were not, they were told that they're victims because of their lack of knowledge regarding abortion, maybe the propaganda of Planned Parenthood and groups like that. And so, therefore, as they're basically being told that they're victims as much as their babies are victims. And The issue that I have with that is that repentance is a big part of salvation. You know, we're called to repent and believe the gospel, and if we're going to repent, it involves calling our sin what God calls it. Mm -hmm. And so, on a very basic level, the gospel's being denied its power in a lot of post. I'm not saying all of it, but in a lot of post-abortive counseling, um, the the power of the gospel is not being shared there. That starts with an acknowledgement of sin. It starts with repentance and and calling it what God calls it. And if you're going to be dealing specifically with the issue of abortion, then specifically they need to sort of face that issue. And so I really believe there's a lot of women walking around who've been through the post-abortive counseling, they've been converted to the pro-life movement, but if they have not repented their sin and placed their faith in Christ alone for their salvation, they may be pro-life, but when they Die at the end of the life at the end of life, like we all do, they'll be headed to hell, and I think we ought to care about that. And the mainstream—I'll just call it the mainstream secular pro-life movement—does not have that as a priority. In fact, if anything, they're trying to get people to say less about religion and the gospel than. More for sure, you know they want that kept on the side. we need to argue from the basis of science um we shouldn't talk about religious things because that will just scare people or they won't relate to it
2: yeah that's the um the Matt Walsh take on it is uh stop thumping your Bible, I guess, and he's a smart guy, but he's also Catholic. So I I guess that that plays into it but that's his perspective is well if you can just convince if you can just convince them that their babies are human then then you've won the argument can you can you explain really quickly why that might be a problem
1: Well they know that it's they they know already that the baby is human There might have been a time in the 1970s to maybe the 1990s where that was uh, the clump of cells argument would have been the predominant argument. But now abortionists publicly are saying, as well as privately, they're saying that, well, yeah, it's a baby. Of course it's a baby. <laughs> uh, but this is a decision that's better for you. You know, There's an abortionist in Dallas, Texas, who in his a clinic, he used to be a Southern Baptist pastor, and in his clinic he's got, pictures of babies with angel wings flying up to heaven. And he said in a TV interview that what he's doing when he's doing abortions is just setting these poor babies free so that they can go home to heaven. He doesn't say they're a clump of cells. He doesn't have pictures of clumps of cells there with wings. Um, they acknowledge that. And so the women in pre uh, before they have their abortions are being told, well, listen, this is just the best thing for you. When we're at the clinics, I've been doing this for eight years, almost nine years, and I haven't met anybody yet at the abortion clinic who didn't know that they were aborting a baby. I haven't had anybody say it was just a clump of cells. Nobody says that.
2: So what are the things that they say?
1: They say this is best for me, just like they're being told by the abortionists. This is, I can't do this right now in my life. you know uh i've got another child and we can't afford this one those are the predominant it's just selfishness essentially um uh, narcissism i think narcissism is the probably the cardinal sin of the united states right now everybody lives for self and so that's the main thing that you hear
2: so when so if you were to confront them and be like well don't you know that you're you're murdering your child what would they say
1: uh anything from "I don't care," and I, "I've done it before, and I'll do it again," to you know, it's you know, this typical stuff. it's none of your business. This is my decision, my choice. That language is still there. You know, my choice. It's my body I get to do with my body, what I want to do with it. Never mind the fact that the body inside of their body is not their body. Um, but do
2: they, so they, they do under, understand that on a scientific level, though?
1: Yeah, they do. They do understand it, but they don't care. <laughs> you know, so you can have all those arguments, and you usually you can end up in them, but the truth is uh, they don't care. And, yeah, we're in a bad way as a culture when we don't care about the most innocent life among us.
2: So what happens when when you're out there, preaching the gospel, let's say doing it your way or, you know, doing it the the way that the Bible calls us to. What, what kind of responses do you get to that versus doing the whole scientific arguments, don't you know it's a baby, that sort of thing?
1: Well, what you get is um, people that are being impacted by the power of the Word of God. And so they react to it a lot the same way that people would react to it in any, any other situation where the Word of God is being preached. So some will mock, but a few will mock, you know, some will um, literally plug their ears and walk on in, but when it, when God is pleased to open hard hearts, the reaction is that they sometimes walk out. <laughs> they leave um, or drive away. We, in May, we had about, we had two confirmed saves over the course of two days. And both times when they left, I mean, they were just happy (laughs) that we were there. One lady said, "Uh, you know, I was praying that if I was supposed supposed to keep my baby, that God would give me a sign And there we were literally standing there with signs and preaching and she left in tears of joy because she was so happy that uh, we were out there. You know, other times you have what are called, um, I always mess this up, I want to say drive-bys, but that's not right, people who just, they don't come out and speak to us, but you notice them leave. You know, maybe they pull into the lot, they're looking at our signs they talk amongst themselves for maybe five minutes and then they just leave, you know, turnaways. That's what we could, yeah call them turnaways. And so that happens, you know, people just turn away. We've had times where they'll drive around the block. This happens quite frequently. They'll drive around the block slowly looking at our signs and then, you know, maybe th- three times or more. And, um, and they just leave. They don't come for their appointment. So those are some remarkable things. We Would you just, say
2: some of these people come back, though, or just come back on a different day? Or
1: The turnaways, it's very likely that that could happen. Uh, that that's, I'm sure does happen. Um, but, you know, when you have the, the conversations and that, I, that's less likely. You know, when you actually have the face-to-face, what we call a save or whatever, um, you know, you're able to exchange contact information, that sort of thing. Yeah, that's, that is more, a better, better odds that they're not coming back. But then you have a guy like John Barrows, who's in our first film, who's out there every day, almost every day that's open. I guess now he's scaled it back to five days a week, but he's there every day. And so sometimes you'll see them come back. I wish I could be there every day. I just can't but you'll yeah. see them come back and have further conversations and sometimes he's able to talk them out of doing it again.
2: Yeah, that his um, you know his interviews in in babies are murdered here the things that he said were really really eye opening. Uh most people I think who sort of have grown up pro life but aren't heavily involved in activism and haven't, you know, been sitting outside or witnessing outside the abortion mills I think would have no idea the things that would come out of his mouth and describing the things that are happening there. Um, and then I saw also, uh, what was I watching? Oh yeah. I was watching one of Sai Cy, Cy 10 Rudenbeck's videos. I think, wait, did Bruggen Kate, sorry. Cy 10 Kate. And he was talking to John Burrows about this and he, he said, well, what happens when you preach the gospel? what happens when you, you when you give them the the word of god and he said uh, it slays them which is uh completely different from what from what you know somebody like Matt Walsh would say or or somebody like Ben Shapiro would say is that it is that it it, it convicts them cuz like um you know it's the word of god is is sharper than any double edged sword but it seems like we're kind of like laying that aside and, and and putting our hands up and being like, well, we're not going to use that. We're not going to use that most powerful thing that we have in our, in our arsenal, the thing that should be the, the basis of what we do, seems very, uh, that doesn't really make a lot of sense.
1: Exactly. That's, that's the case that I try to make when I talk about this. Jo- John's had cases where people can hear him inside of the clinic and they come running out. I mean, running like the place is on fire. They can't get out of there fast enough. And it's simply because he's preaching. Uh, that didn't come from standing there just praying, you know, just inaudibly, or even just gentle persuasion. That that came from him lifting his voice loud enough to be heard and preaching the gospel. And John has had somewhere around 2,000 and higher confirmed rescues out there at that clinic in Orlando. Uh, Maybe another thousand turnaways. It's remarkable what God is doing out there and it's a great, he's like the gold standard for what we do. I I really, you know, really feel like he's what we all, if we're looking for a model, (laughs) it's there. There's John, you know, and I I often challenge myself with that, you know, I want to try to follow that example because I think it's a biblical example.
2: So if you hadn't been encouraged to go just witness or just see what's going on directly, physically outside of the abortion mills, if you hadn't gone there at all, would you have still ended up in in the position that you are now with the perspective that you, you do now? Because, you know, most people haven't been there. Most people haven't heard the things that they say or seen the turnaways or, or any of that. Um. So if you haven't done that, is it just likely that you continue to sort of buy into the standard sort of conventional wisdom from the pro-life movement?
1: Probably. I you know, I believe God is sovereign and he I think he would have changed my mind one way or the other. But I believe that for the average person when they're, you know, if they go see the movie Unplanned um, or if they listen to what National Right to Life is saying or Matt Walsh is saying, even Ben Shapiro says the same sort of things, you know, why (laughs) these people are smart. They've got money. They're the experts. So, so they must know what they're talking about. I mean, that that's most people's mindset when it comes to this, I think abortion has become sort of like the furniture in the room. You know, we're so used to seeing it. We we don't even think about it anymore. 46 years since Roe v. Wade, you know? So I, I think when it, So when somebody does any sort of thinking about it and they spent their lives working on these issues, then we just assume, well, yeah, these people are popular and they know what they're talking about. But I think what we have to come back to is just the sufficiency of the word of God and and to say, well, you know, if the word of God gives says something about uh, the issue, we just need to stick with that and proclaim that and trust him that that will work and even if it doesn't work you know to do it anyway because it's the right thing to do we don't have much faith in the word of god anymore
2: so it would be more important to go go to the word of god first and you know i mean cuz you could still end up outside the abortion clinic thinking the same thing but if you haven't gone to the bible to see to examine what the scriptures say about it you might end up in the same place Okay. So I want to talk really quickly. um, Why do you think people are so, pro-lifers are so married to the idea of incrementally reducing abortion access? You you mentioned, you know, we sort of see it as the furniture. So I guess maybe this is very slowly moving one piece out at a time, packing up one box at a time. Why are people so married to the idea that that is absolutely the only way to eliminate abortion?
1: Well, again, it's what they've, been, what they've been told. It's what we have attempted to do and in, in a sort of pragmatic sense. It seems to make sense, right? Like, you know, if we can save some babies, then that's better than not saving any babies at all. That's more or less the argument. However, if you look at some of these, the specifics on some of these bills that are incremental, meant to make it harder, more difficult for for abortionists to to do what they do what you find out is they don't there's ways around them there's loopholes written into the bills and these bills would never have passed if the loopholes didn't exist so for example the heartbeat bills that are real that have been real popular in recent months of well, the heartbeat bills depend upon the abortionist to find the heartbeat well the abortionist is being paid to kill the baby so what are they gonna do when they when they get a, a board of women in there and they have an ultrasound machine going? Well, we, we're gonna demonstrate in our sequel what they do is they just take the wand and move it a couple of inches out of position and just show some of the placenta, show maybe a cross section of a baby's leg or wrist, and then print out the the um, the picture and hand it to the mom. And say, see, that is just a clump of cells. But if you, like in our case, a sixteen, and a, half, a woman who was 16 and a half weeks along, you move that wand back where it's supposed to be, and what do you see? You see a baby, you know, yawning, <laughs> sucking its thumb, uh, you know, just doing what babies do in the womb at that stage. And uh, they're not going to show that. And so these heartbeat bills... Just to use one example, and there are, there are others, You know the, the, what they're, I think what they're calculated to do, and this may sound very negative,
2: mm-hmm. but
1: uh, I think what they're calculated to do is to throw sort of a uh, crumb to the pro-life voter.
2: Like say, virtue hey, signaling.
1: Virtue signaling. That's it. Virtue signaling. Hey, look, we're, we're doing something to try to end abortion. So look at these heartbeat bills nobody stops to think whether or not a single baby has been uh, rescued by that. And what's worse with the heartbeat bills, uh, who, who does the pathology? You know, who does the, um...
2: well, not only that, but it's all being, it's all, it, all of this is, is, is overturned in the courts. Right. So I think one of the reasons you've seen these, this, cause I've, Read several heartbeat bills, and one of the reasons you 've seen this cascade of heartbeat bills and and um, governors who are so willing to sign them is they know that this is just going to end up in court and be overturned anyway because they still see. Uh, abortion precedent like Roe v Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey as being the law of the land. And so, you know, if if the courts overturn it, well their hands are tied. So there's really there's really not much downside to passing a heartbeat bill. But there there is an upside in terms of saying like you said, see, you know, I've I've done something about abortion. Look at how radical this bill is. It's you know, it'll practically eliminate abortion. But then you look at, you know, Alabama and Planned Parenthood is building a new clinic there. Well, why do you think that is? Is that they're not worried about being um, uh, criminally liable because they they understand that it's going that it's it, it will be you know overturned in the courts and that all of these things are unenforceable anyway.
1: Yeah, and of course the media uh, latches onto any any bill that's pro life and just runs it through the ringer. You know, in the court of public opinion, trying to make the case. Look at these crazy pro-lifers trying to restrict women's rights to choose, and so it all works together very well because then you can have the reaction by the conservative media saying what heroes these people are, mm-hmm. and so it's just calculate. It's an up, like you say, it's a it's a win-win. No matter no matter what you do politically, it's a win-win. But for the babies, it's a loss. Uh, what we need are some bills and. There are bills out there that are trying to end it. And politicians will only do what we demand. They will only do what we demand that they do. The homosexual movement understood that, and that's why they, are, they got all that they got with homosexual marriage and LGBTQ rights. In the meantime, Christians are just happy to take things in small steps, and, man, they've got to be laughing at us. Uh, the ignorance that we're displaying by doing that, we have to demand that this end.
2: So do you think incrementalism is so popular simply because people don't fully realize, for instance, the actual policy implications of the things that are being implemented? Because most most pro-lifers, particularly the ones that that aren't actually activists, but consider themselves pro-life would look at a heartbeat bill and be like, oh my gosh, that's so radical. Look at how much progress we're making. Look at how many states are signing these bills into law. And then so you sort of think that you're winning, right? I mean, is that is that what it is that people, not fully understanding the the actual policy implications?
1: That's what it is. They don't read the bills. Generally, they assume that the pro life lobbyists and and the organizations are telling them the truth about all these things as clearly as they can. When it's just not the case, um, and so yeah, that's that's the issue. They're just being led along. By those that they've been giving money to over the years.
2: So, what are the biggest things that you think are holding people back from becoming full-blown abolitionists and demanding an end to abortion now? What are what are people scared of? What are their fears? For instance, I, uh, I myself and and James Silberman co-wrote a, a piece not that long ago about um, you know the the consequences of not prosecuting women for abortions and so we lay out like three or four different consequences of that and um alexandra desantis who writes for national review i don't know if you've read her stuff but she's on the pro-life beat and she retweeted it and she said something like whispers because it's a bad strategy and i thought oh i think we're thinking about this in totally different ways because one is based off of like well, what, what we perceive to be right and wrong based off of how we've read the scriptures. And the other is based off of, well, how do we convince as many people as possible in polling to say that they're pro-life and that they're against abortion?
1: Yeah, that's exactly it. The they, bad strategy means that we're not going to get as many people to sign up for that because it just doesn't, you know, when you talk about criminalizing anybody, for abortion that's just negative in their mind and sort of the humanist mindset that they have and so <laughs>
2: so it's you know, the victimology
1: it's victimology but it's also a lack of faith um all these i think most of the people in the pro-life movement are still at least somewhat religious we claim we serve a god who took 12 disciples and spread the gospel all over the world. You know, we we claim we serve a God that took a shepherd boy and dropped a giant with a stone. You know what I mean? Gideon had his armies of thousands and God said, no, I only want 300. That's the God that we serve. A God who's powerful if we will follow his principles. That's a clear theme of the word of God. They're willing to abandon that for the sake of numbers. And it's because they worship a different God. They need to get back to the God of the Bible who can, who can drop this Goliath to its knees through simple proclamation of the truth and trusting in a God who is able to actually do it versus whatever this God is that they have that they can do nothing without lies and deceit and manipulation.
2: What, what do you mean by, by deceit?
1: Well, I think in some cases they know better. Um, When it comes to the heartbeat bills in particular, they know better. They know that they'll still spin it in the media, in the pro-life media, like, well, no, this is going to save babies' lives. Well, they know that it won't. They know that those exceptions are there. And when you point out the exceptions to them, they just try to justify them as um, a way to challenge Roe. So they're basically conceding the point when they do that. <laughs> Which shows that when they're when they're spending it as if it's gonna save lives, they know it's not gonna save lives. So it is deceit. You know, I don't
2: And if you challenge Roe in a narrow way, you're going to get a very narrow ruling. I mean it, the whole thing isn't gonna crumble because you've said, but please make please make one extra exception so we can save X many babies between, you know, this week and that week.
1: Mhm. Yeah, exactly right. All
2: right. How would you go about convincing somebody, let's say who's sitting across from you right now, who believes very strongly that incrementalism is the only way to go, that there is no other option because America just, as many, many people have told me, we're just not ready for it. We're just not ready for abolition. We have to get there slowly. How would you go about convincing Those people that we need to demand an end to abortion now, and not only that, but we need to demand the the same consequences that we have for murder in the rest of our criminal codes to apply to abortion.
1: What I do in cases like that is I'm trying to create urgency. On one hand, you know, we need to do it now, and. You know, that goes without saying since we're talking about the murder of babies. So urgency is easy enough to establish. What we have to also do is deal with the idea of justice. What is just when it comes to criminalization? What's just is if you really believe that that baby in the womb is a human life, like we all claim to believe from conception, if since that's true, then what else would you charge the people with that are involved with an abortion? If this thing is made illegal, you can't charge them with jaywalking. You can't charge them with running a red light. It has to be. It has to fit the crime. So equal justice demands criminalization. Um, God is a just God. He never tells us in the Bible to regulate murder. He doesn't tell us to regulate sin. He says to be done with it, to repent of it. (laughs) And so it's both theologically and logically um, nonsensical to suggest that anything else other than criminalization makes any sense. Otherwise, you have these situations, you see these news stories where some mom kills her baby two days after it's born. Mm -hmm. And I don't see a pro-lifer anywhere complaining that those mothers are criminalized.
2: Actually, I have. Yes, because in in the UK, I haven't looked into this in depth, but what I've been told is that in the UK, up to, um, like, your kid is like one or two years old, if you commit infanticide then then you're not sent to prison you're you're basically sent to therapy because um you know postpartum depression and and so you must be mentally ill to to do something like that so um i've heard that come up um, se- several times in that they're not fully in control of their actions and so you know it, if they kill their child then then they should be sent, sent to therapy, basically. So I was astonished to hear that as well.
1: <laughs> yeah, wow. Well, you know, that's probably where we're going. And, you know, I could foresee the time in the pro-life movement, since we like to shift goalposts all the time, I could foresee a time when we don't care anymore about first trimester abortions. And if we end up with infanticide, you know, it'll be pro-life to be defending babies that are under threat of infanticide and maybe third trimester, you know what I mean, and then yeah, just post viability. They'll give up, up conception and first trimester.
2: So you think you see the pro-life movement not even as making an incremental steps toward abolition, but possibly backsliding?
1: Yeah, and in fact, if you watch the trailer we just released the other day for "Babies Are Still Murdered Here," uh, we're at the March for Life, and we've got the the video set so that the people are marching backwards. <laughs> And, and that's exactly what's happening. I, I think we're marching backwards because we're not asking for everything.
2: Okay. So what is the persuasive case for, for somebody who doesn't believe that they're marching backwards?
1: Well, I think the most persuasive, I saw this the other day, the pro-life movement is often bragging about how people's minds are changing on abortion in the third trimester. Okay or maybe maybe even the second trimester look we're gaining ground here. this is shows that we're winning, but if you look at uh across the board, I can't give you the exact statistic I don't remember it now, but I, it was it was uh memorable that you know just what was happening from conception forward, you know people still want in the first trimester something like more than ninety percent of Americans want abortion available in the first trimester mm-hmm well, I don't, is that progress? I mean, is that,
2: is Most that. Most abortions happen in the first trimester, like 93%. Sure.
1: And so I don't see how that's progress. So like when I was on Sean Hannity, when our bookstore went viral, uh, Hannity was like making the case, well, you know, a lot of my friends don't really think that it's a big deal in the first trimester, you know, but boy, this third trimester thing is really horrific. <laughs> And I made the point with him, like, ah, uh-uh, no, it's all murder. You know, right, right back there to conception. And why am I having to have that conversation with a guy like Sean Hannity, by the way? If this guy's the conservative that he claims to be, and he loves Lila Rose and he loves the pro-life movement, why do I have to have that conversation? <laughs> it doesn't even make any sense. But that's why I say we're going backwards. When our leaders, our media... Leaders and he's the number one radio show in the United States, you know, are saying that kind of stuff. I don't see that as progress.
2: Is the pro life movement sliding backwards? Leave me a voicemail at 323 999 1802 with your thoughts. I love to feature listener comments on the podcast. You can ask me a question, vent share your thoughts on any of the episodes or share a cool one eighty story of your own. That's three two three nine 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 one eight zero two. Pastor John Speed, thank you so much for joining me today. Um as I said, I think we have sort of kicked the hornet's nest, but I do pray that um somebody will listen to this and and think about changing the way that they're thinking about um abortion and abolition. You can hear John's sermons on Sermon Audio. That's J-O-N-S-P-E-E-D. Go watch Babies Are Murdered here. Again, strongly recommend that documentary if you have just, you know, an hour, hour and a half of your time. It's available on YouTube. As always, you can follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram, like our Facebook page as well. And please... If you have a moment, please take the time to review the podcast on iTunes. It really does help in putting this podcast in front of more ears so we can have more fascinating conversations and maybe change each other's mind on something. That, that would be fun. You can follow me on Twitter at Georgie underscore Borman where I opine on politics and culture. And of course, abortion is a big part of that. Until next time, seek the truth, share your values, and listen with your heart and your mind. God bless. Executive produced by Kevin McCullough. Music by Ruthie Kraft and Joachim Nordenson.